Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Thus far the reading of God's perfect word. May he now bless its preaching. There is no such thing as a casual interaction with God. Isaiah wasn't being careless nor presumptuous. He didn't lack for reverence toward God. Nonetheless, when he encounters God, he finds himself completely overwhelmed. God is, as one writer put it, always more than we bargained for. Isaiah 6 is about a very real interaction between God and the prophet he'd called to warn his rebellious people. Verse 1 sets that interaction in a very specific place and time. And on the one hand, the location of this story in the book of Isaiah is rather odd. He's been prophesying against the people's sin and rebellion for five chapters already, yet we're just now learning about how he was commissioned and ordained for this work. But on the other hand, it makes perfect sense. We've heard for five chapters about Judah's spiritual failure. And now, in the life of Judah's prophet, we'll see how God can and does respond. We've had page after page detailing the wickedness of God's people. And now, with just a few key words about the holiness of God, the contrast will be starkly presented. What appears to have happened here is that in the year of King Uzziah's death, Isaiah is worshiping at the earthly temple, and God provided him with a glimpse of what was happening in the heavenly temple. On this day, just for a moment, the earthly symbol and the heavenly reality merged in worship. Uzziah, you'll remember, had reigned for a long time. And under his rule, Judah prospered. And God's people rarely handle prosperity well. Even Uzziah, though he had followed God closely at first, became puffed up by his success and complacent toward God. 
To the people, Uzziah represented prosperity and stability. And that's why it's a bit shocking, or it's supposed to be, that Isaiah begins this chapter about the year that King Uzziah died. His long reign is ending. The prosperity and stability the people found in him, it's coming to an end. And here, one writer observes that as the earthly king lay dying, Isaiah sees the true sovereign reigning, holding court in the temple. The timing is also important for Isaiah. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot more book left in this book. As difficult as Isaiah's message has been so far, things are going to get worse before they get better. The message that God has for his people will bring both struggle and conflict into Isaiah's life and ministry. And if he's going to persevere in life and service to God, he needs God's transforming power. And it's what he gets here. That's why what happens in this morning's passage, though it's not about you, can be a great encouragement for you if you'll receive it. I say if, because we may not want to receive it. You see, the encouragement of this chapter begins with conviction. The pattern in Isaiah 6 is that Isaiah first sees God in worship. And then in that context, he sees himself rightly in confession. And that's how God saves and strengthens. Another pastor's outline was sight, insight, salvation. And while we won't get into his commissioning to ministry until next week, we should even now pay careful attention to the order. Isaiah had to see and confess his own sin before he was equipped to go call out the sins of the nation and the generation. We love to call out others for the sins that are so clear to us. But we can't actually do this in service of God until we've first seen our own sin and confessed it before him. First, take the log out of your own eye so that you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brothers. There are also some lessons in here about worship. And even one, as I myself learned this week, about sacraments. And those are helpful, but only if we first grasp as Isaiah did through his encounter, just how desperately we need God to act. If there is anything that Isaiah 6 should teach us, every man, woman, and child, it is how desperately we need God to act in our lives. Another pastor said that if God melts away your natural God resistance, you will know it's the central experience of your life. And if you don't know what Isaiah is talking about, this chapter will explain it. It begins with Isaiah in worship, getting a true vision of God. We know from Scripture's consistent teaching that such a vision isn't God as he actually is. We couldn't see that. It's God as his finite creatures could understand him. That itself is mind-blowing because no matter how big or otherworldly this passage makes God seem, we have to remember that in reality he's even more so 
This is just the most we can understand. He's sitting on a high and a lofty throne, not the measly thrones of earth, not even the most majestic throne of earth. He's inside the holy of holies, the real one on the seat of authority as ruler and as judge. And the whole earth cannot contain his glory. So this place cannot even contain the train of his robe. It fills the temple. God promised that he would meet his people in the temple. At its dedication, Solomon prayed, Lord, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you've said, my name shall be there. God will always be where he said he would be. He promises to meet with his people in worship. And Isaiah had participated many times in the symbol. But this time, the reality was breaking through. What happens in our worship? In your worship? I don't mean the seraphim and the smoke and the foundations shaking, but I do mean the reality of God breaking through these ordinary means that we use to approach him. What do you think worship is? What do you think it's designed to do? Do you ever have Moments in worship where your vision breaks through all of this to the heavenly temple where you glimpse even for just a moment the godness of God. Isaiah did. He saw the glory of God. And what was the glory he saw? Well, remember back a few months ago when we were in John 12, John told us the answer. He said, Isaiah, in this moment, saw Christ. (laughs) It's no surprise. Christ is how God most clearly and fully revealed himself to his creation. Christ is the image of the invisible God. And here Isaiah sees the same Christ we approach in worship, the same Christ by whose spirit we worship in spirit and in truth. And he sees that Christ is not alone in this holy of holies. He's surrounded by the seraphim. This is the only place scripture speaks of the seraphim, these majestic six-winged angels. The name seraphim means to burn. It would literally be translated something like flaming ones, a picture of majesty and of holiness. Two wings for flying so that they're always ready to make haste to do God's will. Two wings covering their feet to keep anything even potentially unclean from the presence of the Lord. And two wings to cover their faces. Because that's right, even these glorious, sinless creatures can't look directly on the holiness of God. It's just too blinding. And by observing the seraphim so closely, Isaiah begins to understand how far God's holiness is beyond his conception. God's holiness is the focus of these beings. The seraphim are not silent bodyguards. They're happy and worshipful warriors. Holy, 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 they cry, not for mere repetition, but emphasis. 
God's holiness, his moral perfection is infinite. Whatever you think holiness is, even when your understanding comes from scripture, from God himself, God's holiness is that, times that, times that. His holiness is infinite. That's why the whole earth is full of his glory. In the first five chapters, we got a pretty detailed view of the sin of God's people. There's pride and selfishness, injustice, violence, covetousness, idolatry, evil, evil, evil is the song that describes what's happening in Judah. And in stark contrast, what's happening in the heavenly courts is holy, holy, holy. You know, godliness and worldliness are always that far apart. It's not a tweak from one to the other. It's not comparable shades of gray. It is stark, utter darkness and light. It is evil and it is holiness. And for those who don't know God, It's the lives of his people that are supposed to help them in making that contrast clear. The lives that we live joyfully before the Lord are supposed to show them in us what they do not yet see in God, that he is holy. Not only is that contrast here between God and his people, but also between two different kinds of creatures, Isaiah and the seraphim. The seraphim are ready to obey. They overflow with praise. Their delight is in worshiping their God. But the people, meanwhile, Judah, God's own people, they rebel against God. They go their own way. And they make a mockery of true worship by just going through the motions, just showing up and checking out. The seraphim, on the other hand, have a vision of God and his glory. It captivates them. And I hope you see that these are no trifling creatures. It's not obvious to us that they would be captivated. Kids, the greeting cards and cartoons portray angels as those fat little cupid cherubs sitting on clouds, right? But scripture identifies them as these majestic, holy, and to us, terrifying creatures. Most of the time in the Bible, when someone sees an angel, they fall down ready to worship it, thinking that it's God. The temple is filled with smoke. The sign that God is present in power and judgment. The foundations of the temple shake with the power of the seraphim's voices. Holy, holy, holy. And the earth rumples. One writer laments that TV and movies make angels sound like cartoon characters and scripture makes them sound like fighter jets breaking the sound barrier. Isaiah came to the temple today as he had many times before. And he participates in the act of worship as he had many times before. And this time, by God's grace, He entered through that into true worship where God gave him a vision of what that looks like, where God showed him 
Christ. That Christ is not just a better or stronger version of Isaiah. Isn't that what we think sometimes? God's just a a better version of us. He doesn't even get a vision that Christ is just a stronger and better version of the seraphim. The vision is that God is categorically different, that he is completely other. He is, in fact, God. And if you've ever had that experience, glimpsing God even just in part as he really is, then Isaiah's response will not surprise you at all. Woe is me, for I am lost. You know, our introduction to Christ in this chapter began with a description, sitting on the throne, high and lifted up. And our introduction to the seraphim began with a description. Each had six wings. But this chapter's introduction to Isaiah begins with an exclamation, Woe is me! He encountered God in worship, seeing him for who he is, and he is so terrified that he expects to be destroyed immediately. A mere glimpse of God in a moment has altered everything Isaiah believes about himself. Would others... Say the same of us. Are there people in our lives who could look at the way that we live and say with confidence that our vision of God changed everything we believe about ourselves? You see, the problem is in the contrast. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's a contrast. Seeing the holiness of God, Isaiah immediately grasps the problem of sin. He immediately understands what it is to be a man. I've heard it said before, we think we're gods until we see the real one. Isaiah lacks even the moral innocence these angels have. He is a sinner, not just a creature, but a sinner. The moment he sees God's holiness, he expects it to be his undoing. This is why there can be no casual interactions with God. Tender, yes. Loving, yes. And gracious, but not casual. The seraphim who are without sin are not casual with God. They're shielding their faces and their feet as they praise his holiness and his glory. Isaiah, the prophet God is calling to himself and to his service. He's not casual. He's a sinner like us. And with just a glimpse of the holiness, he immediately perceives death as it ought to be. One of the reformers noted that it may seem strange that the sight of God brings death to human beings. This isn't how things should be, however. It's the result of sin. But because of sin, death is already within us, but we do not perceive it until it is compared with the life of God. That's the tragedy of the fall. It's really what we mean when we talk about someone being lost. It's what it is to be lost. You are actually dead in sins and trespasses, but you think it's life. 
You think you are free, but you are a slave to sin. And it's not until you see God as he actually is that you even understand your own condition. And because of the godness of God, there was no feeling in Isaiah that was not overpowered by God's presence. We hold so much back. We, we carve out tiny segments of our thinking and of our living, and we allow God to do work there while we hold back what matters most to us. We allow this area of life to be changed by God, or that area of life where we will be obedient to God. Isaiah can't do any of that because all of him, every fiber of his being, every desire that he has, every feeling of his heart is overwhelmed by the godness of God. And as he participates in true worship, reverence, and humility, an awareness of God brings conviction of sin. It's what the author of Hebrews knew. And wrote, thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. That's the New Testament. It's the same God. It's the same Christ. It's the same holiness. But, as I trust you know, Isaiah will not die here. Not because he shouldn't. He should. He will not die because God will save him. From his conviction comes confession, and genuine confession always saves. Why will Isaiah's ministry to the people be one of humble conviction? Because he was humbled himself. Why will he plead, even with the worst offenders, to call upon the name of the Lord? Because he did so himself. And he was saved. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that had been taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. It's not Isaiah's initiative, but God's. God sends one of his messengers to apply God's holiness, this burning coal to the prophet's lips. It's not the seraphs. He has to reach for it with tongs and to bring this sacrament to Isaiah. I said sacrament. You see, the redemptive language of verse 7 is why this is a sacrament. He says, your guilt is taken away. He says, your sin is atoned for. And we know these are not works that can be accomplished by burning coals. The burning coal is a sign. Salvation is the thing signified. Why did Isaiah call out to God? Was it to boast in his good works or his theological knowledge? No, it was to lament his sin and to boast only in the holiness of God. You with tender consciences who regularly have a vision of your own sin and failure, perhaps consider how God is blessing you in that. Because what's unfortunate is not what you think. Oh, God has given me this vision of sin and I have to see my sin all the time. That's not a bad thing. What's unfortunate is not the vision of your own sin. What's unfortunate is that you follow that sin and that vision to shame rather than to savior. 
Isaiah had the vision of his sin. He saw it plainly and he followed it straight to Christ and it saved him. You who live for the approval of others, you should take note that what saves Isaiah here is not the approval of men or even of seraphim. It's the approval of God. And he gains this approval not by works, not by boasting, but by confession of sin and worship. The coal didn't come from the basket of good works. The coal came from the altar of sacrifice. It's a means of grace, a sign and a seal of salvation. And when it touches Isaiah's lips, everything changes. I want to read from John Calvin, the 16th century Swiss pastor and reformer. This was new to me this week in thinking about the coal as a sacrament and what it could teach us about the New Testament sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Isaiah 6 has a lot to say about worship and its very helpful application. The, the coal, as I've said, is not salvation. The burning coal did not save Isaiah. It was a sign and a seal. Nevertheless, the confirmation brought by the sign is effective. The blessing that it signifies is bestowed on Isaiah at the same time as the sign so, so that he knows the salvation is real. Calvin says the Lord does not feed our eyes with empty and meaningless symbols. He joins truth with them in order to testify that his work in us is effective. That's what we perceive and feel in our hand at the Lord's Supper. It's a sign. But because while we receive it, we ought to be seeking Christ in heaven, our thoughts are carried up to heaven. And so by the hand of the minister, what I'm offering you is that God presents you Christ's body that it may be enjoyed by those who rise by faith to heaven to have fellowship with him in heaven. It's that real. And that's why unbelievers may receive the sign. But by unbelief, they linger in the world. They don't rise by faith to the heavenly kingdom. They have no experience of the truth. And so if you cannot raise your thoughts to the heavenly kingdom and experience the truth of Christ there, you're not partaking in Christ. What happens in baptism and in the Lord's Supper is of a kind with what happens here in Isaiah 6. God is working. That's truth. And he uses a sign, a physical, tangible thing to confirm to us by faith that he is working. Sacraments are always to be connected to a worship service and to the teaching of truth so that we understand them not to be vague, magical things, but rather tangible signs of God's truth. God delights in the worship of his people. He endeavors to meet with us in worship and to strengthen us by worship. And we need it. Isaiah needed it. Judah had a terrible time coming. If he was to persevere, he was going to have to look up at God instead of looking out over the horizon. The whole earth 
is full of his glory. That's what we see in worship. And so we're reminded that there's nothing coming in or on this earth that is outside of his glorious control. But when you look out there, you forget it. (laughs) So in worship, we look up there and we remember. In worship, we pray every week that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, reminding us that his kingdom up there doesn't just stay up there. It spreads down here. And what we're doing is part of that spreading when we participate in worship corporately together and when we go out into the world and walk in holiness and love our neighbor as ourselves. We are spreading the goodness of God, the kingdom that is up there, down here. Christian, given your circumstances, it may not seem like it. But that's what worship is for. It's to remember, to be reminded, to see with certainty that Christ is still on the throne. The train of his robe still fills the temple. The seraphim are still blinded by his perfect holiness. And that he still saves. He invites us into his presence. I hope we don't take worship lightly. Because here he invites us into his presence. Whereby seeing him, we can finally see ourselves rightly. And when we do, and just when we think we are undone, he moves to save. Call on him and be saved. Live for him in holiness. That's what it means when scripture says, worship the Lord in holy array. May our church do that every Lord's day until he comes. Amen.